This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. On Money Talks, we discuss money news and take your questions about personal finance. For 15 years, we've provided free financial information for Mississippians. I hope you can join me, Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, co-host of Money Talks, Tuesdays at 9 a.m. or anytime on our podcast. From MPB Think Radio, this is Deep South Dining, the show all about the culture of Southern flavor and the folks that love to stir the pot. Good morning, Malcolm White with Carol Palmer. We will be your host this morning, and we thank you for joining us. Today on the show, we welcome back one of our great friends, Stafford Sheridan from up in the Mississippi Delta. Not only a farmer, a restaurateur, and former judge, but he travels up and down the road searching for the best gas station grub. Also from Biloxi, Sue Wynn from the legendary La Bakerie, the po'boy place with the Asian flair on a traditional po'boy. French-Vietnamese, if you would. Shoot us an email to food at mpbonline.org. We'd love to hear from you. Good morning. It's Deep South Dining on MPB Think Radio. Malcolm White, Carol Palmer, we are happy that you have dialed in this morning. Carol, how are you? Malcolm, I'm great. And how about yourself? Yourself? Himself. Himself. (laughs) (laughs) Himself as well. Java, what's happening in the control central in there? Well, I have my trusty handy-dandy fan on because of the temperature. We don't have a fan in here. Yes, we're... Well, the the, the acoustics wouldn't allow. (laughs) Uh, uh, Yeah, okay. Gotcha. Well, we we got some mail this week. I want to jump to that. Uh, We got a... A note that says that, um, Carol and Malcolm, I took note when you both said that the New Orleans cookbook by Rima and Richard Collins was one of your favorites. I'm a big fan of New Orleans cooking and have excitedly obtained a copy. It's out of print, the New Orleans cookbook by the Collins family, uh, Richard and Rima. I think they were both professors at the University of New Orleans. He was a history professor. They wrote two books that I know of. One of them was this New Orleans cookbook. The other one was called The Pleasures of Seafood. It was their second book. Yeah, and they were the anonymous underground gourmet. Richard was the underground gourmet. And uh, later, it switched over from being the underground gourmet, which was, I think, a franchise in newspaper world with the, <clears throat> with the Times-Picayune. And then he just became the food critic. And when I lived there in 76 and 77, he was writing restaurant reviews, cookbooks. Uh, and so I, I had the great pleasure of uh, grabbing his books. And then she goes on. This is Lynn Brooks. And Lynn, we thank you for listening and we thank you for taking the time to write to us. What are some of your favorite recipes from the book? During football season, I love to cook Cajun and Creole specialties for almost every New Orleans Saints game. Go Saints. I look forward to hearing from you. I love your show. Thank you so much, Lynn. I will tell you, uh, that book is worn out, the copy that I have. The dust jacket is destroyed, uh, and it is, it's got a lot of dirty pages, a lot of stains and rings and spills in that book because it is dearly loved, and I have had it for a very long time. I love... <clears throat> the gumbo recipe, the turtle soup recipe. Uh, there is a version of Mosca's uh, 
oysters. The baked oysters are in there, and there is a version of the barbecued shrimp uh, from, from Pascal yeah, Manali's mm-hmm. in there. Many, many, many great New Orleans Creole Cajun recipes and a lot of great writing, a lot of histories in there. Lynn Brooks, I mean, push the button here. This is Mal's book. Yeah, I love this book. Yeah, I brought along a copy of one of my books from kind of the same era, uh, the Plantation Cookbook from the Junior League of New Orleans. And uh, this one is from 1972. And New Orleans, just being a cooking city, so many great cookbooks. They were like one of the first cities to produce all of these different mm. different cookbooks they had a lot of food to talk about yeah and and quite a society of people to mm-hmm. gather recipes around uh, another book lynn i would recommend to you now that you've scored the new orleans cookbook uh, by richard and rima collins i'm going to encourage you to go out there and see if you can find jesse's book of creole and deep south recipes it is also out of print uh, it is uh, the the cook was Jesse Willis Lewis. Uh, he lived and worked in Bay St. Louis. This book was arranged and published by Edith Watts and John Watts. Uh, I think the publication date on mine has got nice Katrina stains all over it. Uh, 1985. So if you can find Jesse's book of Creole and Deep South favorite recipes, you will be doing yourself a great favor. Malcolm, you are in cookbook world. I am. Today and yesterday. Uh, So tell us about your your drive and your roadside cookbooks. On the street in which I live, there were uh, some some items put out on the curb, a, a table, some chairs, some glassware, and a stack of what someone like myself would recognize from 10 miles away, a stack of community cookbooks. And so I whooped it over, and Kara, sitting in the passenger side, looked across the car, across the curb, and said, I can't believe it. There is a copy of the stuffed cougar from (laughs) Richmond, Virginia, and it is published. She said, I grew up on that cookbook. It is published by the Patrons Association of the Collegiate Schools of Richmond, Virginia. And she recognized it across the way. And it was one of the four that I grabbed. Unbelievable. <laughs> and, I mean, a stuffed cougar does not make me hungry. Yeah, I don't. That must be the team. Their that team must be mascot. the school mascot. Yes, yes, uh, yes. I haven't delved deeply into that one yet. But the other, another one uh, of my scores in the community cookbook caper uh, is a copy of the – it's called A Book of Favorite Recipes Compiled by the United Methodist Women of Riles Creek United Methodist Church in McGee, Mississippi. Ooh, well, our friend Donna Barksdale was a Baptist, but I bet she knows that cookbook. It's a good one. It's a great yeah, and and then uh, I'm sitting here with with one that that you brought, which is truly a classic recipe jubilee by the Junior League of Mobile. And when I owned the Everyday Gourmet for many many years, in fact many decades, this was one already since it was published in 1964 that people were always trying to get their hands on. So whoever put it out on the street did not know what a treasure. 
they had uh, put on that table. And growing up, I had cousins in Mobile who had a home on Dolphin Island, their second home. And uh, we spent a lot of time in Mobile. And Mobile often gets gets overlooked uh, because of New Orleans' great shadow. But uh, great food town. Very interesting history. The Spanish, the French, the British all flew The Native Americans. Were there first, of yes. course. Uh, but a very complex rue of a culture. Uh, this cookbook sort of outlines that. But the thing about the cookbooks, it's entitled the Jubilee. Yeah. And that's something that's an actual phenomenon, a weather phenomenon, a cult, a global phenomenon that happens in Mobile Bay. And you have a little description. Yeah, I, I do. And my my father, uh, Ben Puckett, was from Mobile and he would talk about the Jubilee and the ringing of the bells when the Jubilee happened and shrimp and crab and fish would come up to the edge of the water and people would whatever time of day or night come down to the bay with buckets and nets and gather up this seafood and uh, I don't know I've never heard of anywhere else this happens I haven't either and that's why the bridge across Mobile Bay is called the uh, Jubilee, Jubilee Parkway Brit- yeah. or Bridge. And I got to experience it once with my cousins, the Negus really? family. We were ac- actually out, and, and and it occurs when the moon and the wind. And the tide. The tide and the planet alignment cosmic, happens. Malcolm. Very cosmic, but it's also very real. Yes. It's not a fictitious story. It's a real story. Yes, it is. So anyway, uh, and, you know, thinking about Mobile, and, and New Orleans, uh, Rick Cleveland was down in New Orleans, uh, Ricky and Liz, this past weekend, and he gave me a, a restaurant report. He was visiting uh, with Annie, uh, his daughter, who's in law school down there at Tulane. So they, they went to a restaurant called Bijo, B-I-J-O-U, and it's a relatively new restaurant uh, on Rampart Street. And he said Annie had a dish of pasta with grilled shrimp and squid ink that was really, really good. Liz had pompano, perfectly cooked, and my salmon was with Korean spices and kimchi over rice. Our buddy Dave had lamb shoulder that melted in his mouth, and it was very, very good. This was a very uh, variety-filled menu, as we would say. And I'm not familiar with that restaurant. I am not, and I'm headed to New Orleans on Wednesday, so I'll bring a report. I know we're eating at Saba. Uh, we're eating at Clancy's. I'm oh, so boy. excited. So we'll uptown. Yeah, yeah. So I was thinking as Ricky was reporting out on what he had, and we were talking about Mobile as a food town. And I was on my way up to Oxford this past weekend, and I said to a couple of people, I'm going to Oxford for the weekend, to which they replied, what are you going to eat? So it occurred to me that when a city or a community has arrived culinarily, if that's a word, like when people say, I'm going to New Orleans, the first thing people say, they don't say, are you going to a Saints game? They don't say, are you going to the Tulane Ole Miss game or the Jackson State You you know, whatever, whatever game Uh, they say, what are you going to eat? Or if you've been, they say, what What did you you eat? eat? So I have decided that any time that people say that about a community, whether it's in Mobile, New Orleans, New York, 
Oxford, Jackson. It's a beautiful thing, Mel. You have arrived. If people are asking, where are you going to eat? And, you know, I give a lot of credit to Oxford's uh, becoming a food town to our friend John Currents. You know, he, he arrived there. He cooked in the kitchen of Bill Neal in um, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, really kind of started the Southern food, the new Southern food movement. And John opening City Grocery really was the start of a movement. And so many people who came through his kitchen have become restaurateurs. But um, he was he was the first of that of right. that era. And that happens here in Jackson, uh, both at uh, you know, Walker's Drive-In mm-hmm. uh, and uh, under, uh, you know. Charlie Heinemann at the time. Starting. Yeah. And, and then Derek. But either way, um, the last cookbook that I picked up, I picked up four yesterday. This one is The Incredible Edibles 2, compiled uh, by the Spanish Fort United States. United Methodist Church. So there's two things that we know about the previous owners of these books that I... They were Methodist. They were Methodist, and they lived in and around Mobile. Yes. And, uh, you know, Robert St. John said you said Methodists wear a little necklace with the casserole charm <laughs> on it. He, and, said, he, he said the Methodists, if you have a funeral or any, any other uh, event, the Methodists are going to bring a casserole. And Eudora Welty often said that chicken spaghetti was a Methodist dish. Well, so indeed, there. yeah, so. and a casserole. Yeah, okay, so I'm going to read uh, a recipe from this uh, Spanish Fort United Methodist Church, and the recipe is for elephant stew. <laughs> Ingredients, one medium-sized eggplant, salt and pepper, two rabbits, optional. Cut the elephant into bite-sized pieces. Add enough gravy to cover. Cook over a kerosene fire at 465 for four weeks. This will serve about 3,800 people. (laughs) If more are expected, then add the rabbits. (laughs) So that's truly how to eat an elephant is one bite at a time. Do so only in an emergency as most people don't like hair in their stew. <laughs> you, had, you had me going for a minute. Michael. You had me going for a minute. It's like elephants, too. <laughs> and there you have it. Right out of the Incredible Edibles 2 cookbook from Spanish Fort United Methodist Church. Uh, well, one more question about your books, Mel. Did yep. you buy these books, or was it a giveaway? No, these were to be thrown away. They were in a pile of a things pile. that were discarded, which is the ultimate way to find Treasures a community Treasures and trash. Absolutely. Uh, a caller uh, asked us to repeat the names of the cookbooks that we talked about in the first segment. So, Carol, you spoke about? I spoke about Jubilee from the Junior League of Mobile and the Plantation Cookbook from the Junior League of New Orleans. And I referenced Incredible Edibles 2, compiled by the Spanish Fort United Methodist Church, which is a community cookbook. Uh, I talked about the, the recipe with the elephant came out of the favorite recipes from Our Best Cooks Cookbook, which is the United uh, Methodist Women of Riles Creek United Methodist Church, McGee, Mississippi, 
We talked about the stuffed cougar from <laughs> Richmond, Virginia. <laughs> Richmond, Virginia. And I referenced a, a Creole book, Jesse's book of Creole and Deep South recipes, as it's rare, hard to find, been out of print forever, but a dull. Delightful volume. Uh, Malcolm, isn't it just like those people from Simpson County to make elephant stew? Of course it is. <laughs> All right, Carol, we have guests. We have guests. Indeed. One of my favorite places to eat in Biloxi, La Bakery. Uh, I, I don't know when it began, but we're getting ready to find out. But I know I started going there after Katrina. I'm sure it was there before then, but we, we will find out soon. And I love that place. It's very unique, and it is a fusion of Asian culture and French-slash-Gulf Coast culture, if I could so impose my opinion on this. You can impose, but, you know, the the French actually occupied Vietnam starting in the 1880s for 60 years, and um, they left a lot of good things behind in the cuisine including some of the best baguettes and croissants you'll ever eat are in Vietnam and not in France. Yep. So let's welcome to the show La Bakery's very own Sue Wynn. Hello, Sue. How are you? Good morning. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, and please tell us about your restaurant. Well, the bakery, we just added a, cap- uh, a little cafe deli area into that. Um it's kind of a unique little eclectic mix. I think uh, the description of it is um, pretty spot on. You know, it's a little bit of a fusion of both. I think it's uh, all of my favorite things, if that makes sense, yeah. you know, what I see that day. Um, and uh, definitely all the influences that I've had growing up, for sure, um, on the Gulf Coast. So your family, uh, are, are you Vietnamese? I don't want to say something yeah. that's not correct. I am. Um, I was actually uh, imported. My mom did not know she was pregnant with me when she came over to America, and I actually was born in San Diego. Mm-hmm. Were your family uh, fisher fishermen, fisherwomen? Um, actually, no. Um, they started off when they were in California. They actually owned a little small restaurant. Uh, my parents actually took a cross-country trip. Uh, across this whole southern part of, you know, the United States from California to Florida. They stopped off in, you know, different towns along the way. Uh, one of the places they stopped was Biloxi, Mississippi, because they had some friends that uh, migrated down here. And uh, my parents fell in love with the Gulf Coast area. It was a very quiet, uh, you know, community that they just thought it was a great area to raise kids. Well, Indeed it was, and the Vietnamese community has been just a huge addition to the Gulf Coast. And, you know, that, that is, that's wonderful to hear that they, they actually came and chose this place. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. so, so when did, uh, when did La Bakery open? Uh, La Bakery actually was a, uh, my parents had a um, grocery store before, a little Asian market. And um, we basically kept in a counter, you know, in the market, um, you know, just to kind of see how it would work out or whatnot. Um, and that happened right before Katrina. So it was not even about a year before Katrina, about a year and a half before Katrina. Yeah. So, um, 
I say a counter, you know, we just added just a couple of items in there. Um, I think that's kind of how the progression of it began, you know, began. So right before Katrina, I said we decided to close the market um, and try to transition into a full-on bakery. And then, of course, as that happened, Katrina hit, and then we're back to ground zero. <laughs> was the market on Howard Street? Um, actually, it was on Oak Street. It was the building right next door to it. Oh, okay. We uh, ran it for about 19 years. So Great. our family for about 19 years. Um, but actually, yeah, my parents actually moved down here with the idea of getting into the shrimp and, you know, the seafood industry down here. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad took one shrimp trip and uh, <laughs> it was definitely a <laughs> You know, my, our old buddy, <laughs> our old buddy, Cotton Baranich tells a story about growing up on the point in Biloxi. His father and his father's family were all fishermen. Cotton said he took one trip out with his dad and got seasick and came back and he told his father, I'm going to find a different profession. And he became a bartender, a mixologist. Yes, and there is no kind of seasick like a shrimp boat. Uh, (laughs) Seasick. Yeah, I cover, actually covered the marine engine market for Caterpillar in my early days in the 70s, and I went out on one shrimp boat to photograph uh, Caterpillar engines. And I, I mean, I was literally on, on the floor, spread eagle to on the floor of that boat, just praying to get off. <laughs> Well, Sue, you have a very unique uh, name for the po'boy, the Vietnamese-style po'boy. What is it that y'all call it? Well, it's not a unique name. Bun mi's are actually a tradition, you know, Vietnamese cuisine that is actually a sandwich, you know. Uh, literally, bun mi is actually translated into um, the word bread as well. So it's a double meaning. It can mean bread or a sandwich or, you know, the meal itself. Uh, we did not you know, invent the bun me, you know, it's just a take on, you know, something that was unique in our culture. You know, I think like when you have different areas, like down in the South, we call it po' boys up North, they call it, you know, hoagie right. or subways so, or, you know, so, yeah, Dagwoods. Have, you know, mm-hmm. They have a lot but of I names. But I think it's a little bit of a different, you know, flair on certain things, you know, so um, there's some classic sandwiches that are made that are, you know. Um, obviously, they're Vietnamese sandwiches, but, you know, we've also taken our twist on certain things like, um, you know, a fusion that we made a coconut curry chicken, uh, I mean, which is based off of a family style meal that's, you know, served in Vietnam as well. Right. Break down the banh mi for us. So the bread base starts off on your traditional French bread, which we bake in-house at La Bakery. Uh, we make that from scratch. Um, and then we have basically, you know, what they call, in the Vietnamese, called a bu, which is more or less like a garlic aioli mayonnaise kind of spread that's on there. Right. And then, uh, you know, your choice of protein. So, you know, you would have something like traditionally, you know, a roast pork or uh, like a meatball or a, a lemongrass-filled pork, something like that. Or a jalua, which is very a humble, uh, it's like a ham, you know, it's like a, um, almost like a bologna, because it's made from like a pork and chicken, where you uh, blend it together and you steam the product, you know, but uh, that's your base, you know, and then it has a slaw that's made from daikons and carrots that are marinated in a vinaigrette, and then you actually have, instead of like, you know, and I think that 
acidic, you know, part of your sandwich, you know. So in an, an American culture, we usually put like a pickle, you know. Right. So, you know, with Vietnamese, you know, with the, the, the tua is um, the slaw that goes on top of it. So your fresh ingredients, you know, would be your uh, fresh cucumber slices that's in there mm. or wet. And then we also put like uh, thinly sliced onions and cilantro and a slice of jalapeno, you know. So it's a definitely a different flavor profile that you get all at once. And I think that's kind of the charm of like Vietnamese cuisine is that you do get this infusion of different flavors that hit you on different levels. You know, and hit, very- you know, hit your taste buds in 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 different places, and and I know that I have never made it out of your parking lot without <laughs> eating my by me in the car. Right, wise choice. Right. Uh, let me ask you this question, Sue. I know down there on the coast, people press a po' boy, you know, flatten it. That's sort of one of the traditions. Now, how do you heat up uh, your sandwich? You want to toast our bread. Our French, you know, the French bread, you know, obviously, you know, I tell people all the time, even though you bake bread or whatever, you put it in a plastic bag, you know, the humidity, things like that, the moisture comes through on the crust, you know, that kind of stuff. So when you toast the French bread, you get this light, crispy, you know, toasting on the crust, but the interior still stays soft and moist. Mm-hmm. You know, so then you'll have that breakfast without having that chew, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think that's kind of like the idea of pressing a po' boy as well as, you know, being able to fit in your mouth, but... I truly do love a pressed po' boy because I don't think it should be served any other way. <laughs> when you're talking about your traditional po' boys, that's a whole other story for sure. Can you, but, uh, can you identify a couple of your favorite pressed po' boys down there for us? Uh, crab meat and cheese, absolutely. Uh, that's, definitely that, that's the old Van Cleave special. Absolutely. That is my absolute favorite one. Uh, I cannot pass up a, a really good shrimp po' boy as well, you know. Um, and, you know, everyone's class favorite would be the roast beef po' boy, you know. And, and what I about think some... that's part of the charm is you got to – it has to be messy. Oh, I was just going to add to the conversation uh, by telling a story, a quick story on Malcolm. Malcolm actually did – an academic lecture at the Southern Foodways Alliance. He was on stage in front of about 300 people, food critics, magazine people. He was giving a lecture on the pressed po' boy, and he brought an ironing board and an iron (laughs) to do his demonstration. And people remember, we say, Malcolm, oh, yeah, that's that dude that had, with the ironing board. <laughs> ironing board, Malcolm. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a great uh, college student hat. <laughs> I had to improvise. There, were, there was no, uh, no pre- boy press. No press there. Can you name a couple of the places where you get your sandwiches, uh, Sue? I'd love to hear about some of the eateries. Oh, my God. Like my favorite po' boys that type thing or just eateries yes. in general no no your favorite oh, po boy po boys uh definitely i love going to uh quave brothers in uh diaryville right uh, it's a great family you know uh they have a great product there as well uh we also love going to death ports right you know uh, and that's where the brothers. seafood uh still part of the seafood operation yes, yes an amazing family as well uh deep roots of you know uh, your seafood industry down there for mm-hmm. sure, um, but yeah, I mean, there's so many different little places, you know. Like I think there's a, you know, like if you ask my husband, he loves, you know, Pirate Cove, 
Well, yes, Parrots Cove is now owned by uh, Mundy's uh, Keith Puckett. Uh, Rustbridge and past Christian, but we should have owned it a long time ago because my family with six children would kept it open. Yeah, kept it kept it open. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to hear about some of the other dishes on the menu, which are uh, you know Vietnamese or fusion, which are uh, some of your most popular or, or unusual dishes. Say they were unusual because they are, uh, you know, like so, like one of the items that we have is um, it's called soy lexo, and that's the Vietnamese translate, you know, Vietnamese word for it. But what it is is a, a Chinese sausage that's um, basically sautéed with a uh, shallot, and then you kind of make a little bit of a sauce that goes with it, and then it's on a coconut sweet rice. Mm-hmm. So it's more like very humble dish in a sense, but it, it actually is a lot of prep work to making that. Um, but it's a it's it's more like a snack, and it could be more it could be a meal, it could be you know. Uh, but again, it's one of those easy me- uh, snacks that you know. I think just growing up as a kid, you just get excited when they make something like that, you know. And uh, for us to offer that at the bakery, for us to walk in and grab, you know, I think that brings back a little bit of nostalgia for a lot of people. And again, I think, you know, those that do not know about this, you know, when they do try it, you know, again, it's, it's, it's the texture, it's the infusion of flavors. And they're like, I guess, you know, more or less like they don't like, they can't pinpoint like why you have that, you know, but it, again, I think it's like the sweetness, the saltiness, you know, from the meat. And then, you know, you get the texture from the rice as the carrier. And then That's we right. do different things, you know, but I think, you know, when people say, are you a Vietnamese bakery? No, not necessarily. Uh, you know, we're Vietnamese owned. Yes, we do carry, you know, different, pro- you know, things. And again, I think it's more or less like um, a collection of things that we like to eat, if that makes sense. Sure. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right. Java, do you have hey. something? No. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I saw an article, um, Sue, um, uh, about the bakery and the role that it kind of played in um, the early days of after Katrina. You know, you guys have been a, a kind of a staple out in the community for a while. And I saw a Vice article um, about how you guys were one of the first places open after Katrina and served the place, you know, and kind of served as a hub in the community. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Seems like yesterday and so long ago in like an instant. Uh, I think Katrina was a very humbling experience on all sides, meaning, you know, every echelon of social status versus, you know, race or whatnot. We were all in it together. And I think as far as the location for La Bakery, it was in such a devastated area, which, you know, uh, because we're so close to the coastline and then the back bay, um, you know, we were so limited, you know, after Katrina for places to go eat or even Walmart, you know, just trying to pick up daily supplies. So for us, I think, you know, because of where I was located on top of my building and the structure and the amount of damage or whatnot, you know, I was able to get up and running really fairly quick, you know, bare bones. Uh, you know, because of the type of building that we were in and that kind of stuff. And luckily for me, uh, Mississippi Power is almost like across the street <laughs> where they send, uh, you know, their, uh, they dispatch their, you know, and uh, City of Biloxi got me water immediately. 
you know. So, I mean, those two things right there got the ball rolling as far as clean, the cleanup effort and whatnot. Uh, you know, once I got electric, temporary power, things like that, you know, everybody was coming by to ask, when are you going to open them? I'm like, well, I need gas. I can't fire up anything. Right. <laughs> you know, and I think that was one of the big, but logistically just trying to get supplies and things like that in was, you know, fairly difficult, you know, until the supply lines were uh, established. And once that was, you know, anything that we could make, we tried to, but I think bread is such a, uh, you know, obviously the staple, you know, uh-huh. um, but just feeding the relief workers that came down here or just having, you know, for not having, you know, obviously gas stations, we were, it was so hard to get gas, you know, mm-hmm. no one really drive any further than they needed to, you know. So for us, I think um, just rebuilding that community ASAP was, you know, the only thing that was on our mind, you know, All right. get back to normal for sure. Well, Sue, thank you so much for joining us. And we uh, very much love your place and Congratulations on hanging in there for quite a long time and helping Biloxi become more uh, diverse and complicated and and rich and beautiful. Uh, And being named the best bakery on the Gulf Coast. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's a very, it's definitely a very humbling experience in so many ways. Uh, You know, we do everything that we do every day. And uh, you never really take a step back look at some of the impacts that you've made, you know, type thing. And uh, I think we're very grateful for uh, all of our customers and then, you know, obviously the accolades that come with it. And uh, I really, we really enjoy what we do, you know. And And we really enjoy what you do as well. (laughs) So thank you so much for joining us this morning. That's Sue Wynn with La Bakery and Cafe, a French-Vietnamese-style establishment in Biloxi. Deep South Dining, Malcolm White, Carol Palmer, Java Chapman. And on the phone, one of our buddies from up in the Mississippi Delta from Drew, Stafford Sheridan. What's going on, my friend? You know, just watching the weather cool down, isn't that nice? Man, it's exciting. Who knew that we'd be excited when it was was below 83? (laughs) No, well, yesterday it was 93, and it it felt like cool breeze. I know, it felt like somebody turned the AC on. (laughs) What's happening in your world, my man? You know, I was I was listening to you guys earlier talking about cookbooks. I got to throw a couple out there that I love to gift, and one of them is uh, North Sunflower Academy did a cookbook years ago called Pick of the Crop. Okay. Yes, and it is such still a great pr- collection. It's still of, in print. So the original Pick of the Crop is not. You can still buy Pick of the Crop too, which is I like the original better. And it's so funny because it's so dated. There's this little microwave section in there because microwave <laughs> were new. <laughs> But the the recipes, you know, almost everybody in there, they they have incredible handed down. I call them heirloom recipes. It's just so great mm-hmm. if you can find one. You can find them on eBay still. But the, the other one is Paul Prudhomme's original cookbook, the first one he did. And the reason I gift it so much is he explains why you do a roux the way you do it. He right. explains why you use minced garlic and garlic powder. So he gets really down to the basics. So for a new Somebody's new to cooking. It's a great book. Paul Perdue gets overlooked a lot, uh, but his place and when he hit the scene, he was the originator and the innovator. Uh, and I love going to his old restaurant in New Orleans, which is not yeah. there anymore. Yeah, right. unfortunately, it was a, uh, a casualty of COVID, I think. Right. But, you know, he started the whole blackened fish thing. Yes, he did. That was him. He wiped out he the redfish population. The redfish population. It's taken decades to build We adapted up here in the Delta and started blackening catfish. Yeah, you know, right. It's, it's equally as good. 
You know, you were talking about the microwave section in a community cookbook, Carol. I think the future there will be an air fryer section. Yeah. So will that be a bad you think and we'll be laughing at it in fifty yes, years? Yeah, and we will we be will. laughing. I think we will. <laughs> Well, I tell us, you've you been out on the road, any? You've been, tell us about your, your project uh, at, with the gas stations. So it's been an interesting summer. It's it's getting harder and harder to get, you know, I've done everything in a two-hour radius just about it. So so now I have to spend the night, but I went up to uh, Anthony Bourdain named one gas station in his, like, 13 places to eat before you die, and that's Joe's of Kansas City. Wow. So my daughter and I made a a – Lightning trip to Joseph, Kansas City. That was a lot of fun. That a was, sojourn. That was a good one. And can yes. you report out? You know, I'm still a Memphis barbecue fan. I, so I like Memphis barbecue better. And, I mean, I think that's one of those, that's what you're raised with things. Right. But the burn-ins at Joseph, Kansas City are the best burn-ins I've ever had. And burn-ins so, aren't but, really a Memphis, ten, you know, it's not a no. Southern thing, though I think tips are more of a Southern yep. thing than burnt-ins. I could be wrong. For I'm sure. not a barbecue uh, expert. But up there, uh, they know, love a burn-in. melding of cultures now, and so it's funny. My daughter and I had actually gone to a restaurant in Memphis, and we got some burn-ins, and there just was no comparison. You know, Memphis doesn't know how to do burn-ins yet. They're getting there. Getting there. Yeah. But it was the Kansas City was, was much better, and um, that was fun. We stopped at a place in Oark, Arkansas, called Oark General Store. It's the longest continuously operating store in Arkansas. It's a gas station. Spell Oark like Ozark it's without exactly, the C. It's exactly <laughs> like it sounds. It's, it's O-A-R-K. Okay. And, um, they forgot the Z. You better you better have gas when you go there because it is in the middle of nowhere. You can get gas there, but and there's no cell service, so you can't call anybody. So we get there and they have Wi-Fi, and it's just this cool place. You most of the people eat outside. They've got this great outdoor eating space, and you just see the mountains in the distance. It's just a really cool spot. Great hamburger, fresh cut fries. Mm-hmm. They hand cut their fries. I thought that was kind of cool. Absolutely. And then I spent a couple of days up in the Smoky Mountains and. Uh, you know, that was also an interesting trip. So I got, I've been around a little bit this summer. Well, I was just checking the mileage from Drew to Kansas City. <laughs> Malcolm, it's nine hours. It's 600 miles. That's a long way to go. That's a commitment. <laughs> to eat well, you know, the, the furthest ends. I've driven is 1,100. I, I drove and that I ate Florida. at a gas station in Key West. Oh, uh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> this man is serious is. about road food. <laughs> I know it, but for a burnt-in, Malcolm. That's a long I haul. Drive, <laughs> I drive nine hours for a burnt-in. Stafford, what's well, going you know, on at the cafe? Bourdain man? Says, <laughs> when Bourdain says to eat before you die, you got to do it. Right? Oh, you uh, got to yeah. do it. Yeah. Well, what's going on at the cafe in Drew? You know, we, um, we're getting geared up for the Delta Wings Festival, which is October 14th. And a big part of that is cooking. We're doing the gumbo championship mississippi state gumbo championship again and we'll have some duck calling too but you know i know your listeners are going to be interested in that duck gumbo championship that was a lot of fun last year yeah are you going to repeat that yes, yes. we you know the funny story is elizabeth high school's husband won the duck gumbo championship last year i'm not surprised luke's a good cook we uh... he is a great cook and there's this great story because we have a turn-in time and everybody's turned their gumbo in, and they're, like, getting their cups ready, and I'm collecting it. 
and, and as they bring it in and giving it to the judges, who were Wright Thompson and Dave Cruz, which y'all know both of them. Yep. So great judges. And uh, I'm put, they're all trying to get it exactly right. And Luke's across the street from the turn-in, and I holler at him and I said, dude, you've got like three minutes to get your gumbo turned in. So he sloshes it in a cup and brings it over there to me and wins the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, just putting a bug in your ear, you know, Malcolm and I have judged other gumbo contests. Yes, we have. And actually, yeah, gumbo's pretty hard to judge. It actually. is. And, complicated. Uh, actually, Very complicated. Malcolm's brother, Hal, who is sadly no longer with us, won the gumbo contest i, I know for oh yeah what, probably two, multiple yeah. multiple times but yeah. we're available in java's always hungry you know maybe yeah. next year <laughs> you know, you know it's uh, <laughs> it's and it's duck gumbo which makes it equally goes so good right right so we of course are <laughs> we were delighted to come to your mardi gras parade did you have that again this year we did, and uh, it was it was a lot warmer. <laughs> I know you guys remember. That's one of the coldest I've ever been in my life. I've been on a mountain in Nevada with with it snowing, and that was warmer <laughs> than Jerusalem. It was pretty breezy, you guys. <laughs> and it was like seventy degrees this year. Uh-huh. We did it all Fat Tuesday this year, and it was wow. seventy degrees. Sun was shining. And we had, like, at least three or four times the turnout, both in terms of people participating and people watching. I think, really, it was just weather. And people are, you know, up in this part of the Delta, they really, everybody really doesn't understand what Mardi Gras is, so they're kind of getting it figured out now. And everybody that came was like, we cannot wait for next year. We want to be a part of this. Yeah, that was like uh, Mal St. Patty's Day Parade. You know, the first year it kind of wound through town, and people were going, what? Right. It's, what is what is going on? But stay the course on that, and you'll you know have fifty thousand people before you know it. That's right, sneak up on you. So tell yeah, us. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, definitely stole from from you guys on the on the St. Patrick's Day parade. I was like, I, we need to do something like that in Drew. So that's kind of where the idea came from for sure. Yeah, and this will be year three coming up, or four? I can't remember. This will be year three. Three. Mm-hmm. Okay. So tell us a little bit more about the Delta Wing Festival. Where is that? I know it's October 14th, but tell us a little bit about it. October 14th in downtown Drew, and we actually did it for about eight years, and then it just kind of fell by the wayside. Nobody was doing it. Last year, we brought it back and did just the gumbo. And this year, we've got the uh, duck calling championships as well. So we've got two regional championships and a state championship. You have to be from Mississippi to do the state championship, but mm-hmm. anybody can blow in the in the regionals. And all three of those people, winners, will go to Stuttgart to the world championship, and that's like a $50,000 first prize. So they, wow. these guys take this very seriously. And um, it's we, we're kind of looking forward to getting that back in, Drew. We had that years ago, and we just brought that back. I was really just wanting to do the gumbo cooking, and that was it last year. Like, I don't really want to do a festival – but I wanted to, we had so much fun with our gumbo championship. Right. So we were just going to do that. And the next thing you know, Mike Ellis and the hometown band were playing and we had vendors. And you know, so right. it kind of blew up pretty fast on us. So I, I told uh, my staff, I said, we're going to commit to doing two events a year and it'll be the, the parade and then this festival in October. Well, I mean, that's, that's our duck season doesn't start till Thanksgiving. So 
People are going to be using old ducks, mm. frozen ducks. So it'll be ducks from last year. You know, that's one of the things we ran into with getting teams last year was people didn't know we were going to do it, and so they hadn't planned ahead. <laughs> and they were calling buddies, hey, I need some ducks. And yeah. uh, so that, that cut back. So I'm hoping this year we have a few more teams in there. But that, it's a lot of fun, the Duck Gumbo Championship. That's to me, the, you know, the, the calling thing's pretty serious. But most of these guys doing the gumbo, they're just doing it for fun. It's not like the Memphis Barbecue Network kind of thing where it's a real serious thing. So, you know, you can be a novice and come have a good time with us. Right. So, Carol, you ever, been, you ever been duck hunting? You ever been out in duck blind? Oh, yeah. You know, I worked on a couple of duck books. I've been duck hunting all the way from St. Louis to Louisiana now. You have your own call? and No, I do not. I don't shoot the ducks, but I do love to go out in the blinds. And I uh-huh. love, I mean, I love what they call first shooting light. And that's even before the dawn. It's the most beautiful mm-hmm. just when the light just lifts. But, right. you know, the duck hunting culture is just a beautiful culture and you know in in st louis those clubs were formed in the 1870s and 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 are still going on and you know the stuttgart area is unique and the mississippi delta is unique we're in the uh, flyway right we are Mm -hmm. we are we're in the mississippi flyway yeah and yeah by the time yeah they get down to louisiana they've been shot up and they're tired (laughs) and they're and they're tired but there's nothing you know stafford's right in the in the heart of it right there um so stafford we we have a lot of fun with it oh absolutely and as a matter of fact to, to tie all this together i bought my restaurant building with money i made guiding duck hunts here Good for you. Good for you, Stafford. So that's that's great. How I got in the restaurant business. Hey, you know what? If we did a deep south dining duck hunt in Java, and Carol and I came up, and uh, you know, well, I know a good spot. I saw the light, hunt, and you know, hunt maybe right on my farm here. Maybe we don't kill everything we see, but we have a big time, and we could report out on it. Yeah. Got to get up early, though, Java. Fun. Very I'd early. Love to do it. And that's our problem right there, or my problem. I'm not going to speak for everybody, but the getting up early part. <laughs> Staying up late, I have no problem. Yeah, John, getting and, up early. And putting on the waders. The waders. Yes. The waders. That's cold always, water. yeah. Cold, Ooh. cold. Yeah. Maybe I, we can I'm sure them. we can find a knee-deep spot somewhere where we don't have to yeah. have waders. But I, we, like your, I like your thinking, Malcolm. I like we your go thinking. with a pro, and uh, you know we don't have to show out. We just show up and have a big time and report out, and then maybe go eat some duck. I yeah, love duck. The beautiful I, thing about duck hunting is it's not like sitting in a deer stand by yourself. It is a community, as Carol said, and we sit out there and we tell stories just like we're doing now. And it's a beautiful thing. I mean, if the ducks are flying or not, it's kind of almost irrelevant. It's beautiful. It's a it's a good time, and everybody gets to know each other so much better. And it is a beautiful thing to watch and hear somebody call in the ducks a good duck caller is a thing of beauty it's it's just it is it's very special so are are you a good caller i can call they they call me a meat caller like i would never be able to compete in these competitions Mm -hmm. i'm i'm out on that but i can call a duck in so you know you're a meat meat caller as in i can call up enough to eat correct a meat caller. I like okay. that. Well, I am not a competition caller. Yeah. I'm there. My call is designed to to put it in the gumbo in, pot. To put it in the gumbo. Okay. <laughs> exactly what it well, is. I do, even though I can't call. I have a beautiful duck call made by 
Bill Lester, our good friend at Dockery Plantation. Oh, yeah, we know Bill and, well. Uh, he, you know, an artist and former head of the art department, but his, his uh, duck calls are art. What, what about they if you are. bring it into the studio I'll and, do it and we all take a turn making yeah. uh, okay. a joyful noise? I, you've got to tell me when that episode airs because I definitely want to hear this. <laughs> we'll have to you practice. You should have Bill though. come in and show you how to use it, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's true. Well, there, there you go. Well, we can uh, talk about duck gumbo and have some duck calling. Mm. Absolutely. It would blow the acoustics out of the it would be, studio. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be rough. You yeah, know, Java would have to be prepared for that one. Yeah, Java can roll. Now we could turn, we could take it and turn it into a mixtape. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> How did Greatest we get hits. off so far? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get off ducks and let's get back to the farm. We got a wrap. Oh, we do. But, okay, if you, if you got Stafford, a quick one. real quick, how is the crop? We've been thinking about you with the drought. I think we're, you know, we got a lot of rain in July. I think most people here are pretty happy with their crop. We just, I just started harvesting on Sheridan Barn. A lot of guys are done with corn. So I think it, in large part, the Mississippi Dells is in pretty good shape right now. Well, that's good to reassuring. Hear Thanks so much. Man, it's great to hear from you. And as always, well. we appreciate it. And uh, keep on keeping on. And we'll talk Absolutely. to you soon. If you're in Drew, Mississippi, uh, be sure and go by Stafford's Deli and Market. Have some of his good food and stay tuned to what he's got going on. Deep South Dining is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting's Think Radio. We are funded by the generous contributions of folks like yourself, and we thank you. Our show is produced by Java Chapman. For my co-host, Carol Palmer, and our guest today, Stafford Sheridan and Sue Wynn from La Bakery and Cafe in Biloxi. I'm Malcolm White. We ask that you stay tuned now for Marshall Ramsey's program entitled Now You're Talking. Please join us every Monday and every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. for more Deep South Dining, heard right here on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.